Good morning. In the course of a given year, there's a whole lot going on in the life of a congregation. And it seems like we're in a stretch where one event gives way to another. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today. I want to present to you a challenge that I know that you're more than able to respond to in a great way as you always do. 21 days from right now. And we can break that down even more. If there's 168 hours in a week, that's three weeks. That's over 500 hours that we have to invite our friends and our family and our neighbors and uh, anyone who wants to come and hear the gospel proclaimed. We are having an evangelistic gospel meeting with a very capable man on um, September 18th through the 21st. His name is Robert Hatfield. He is the new preacher at the College Church in Henderson, Tennessee, where the uh, home of Fried Hardeman University is. Robert does a, an excellent job in proclaiming God's Word. It would be a great time for us to have folks to come and to hear God's Word. So let's be getting the Word out and have as many as we can to be present with us. We are beginning today, you may notice this if you looked in the sermon note sheet inside the bulletin, you'll notice it as the PowerPoint comes up in just a moment, that we are entering into a series of lessons over the next several weeks, Brother Robert's gospel meeting in the heart of that, in which we are looking at the subject of church leadership. Not only are we going to be looking generally at church leadership, but specifically we are going to be looking at the work uh, and responsibilities, qualifications, and so forth of elders. I want you to know up front that this was a request that was made from our elders. And it says two very important things about them that I want you to internalize and I would encourage you with opportunity to go up to them and express your gratitude for them in their request for us to do this. Number one, it shows humility on their part. In the study and exercise of these lessons, it is meant to stimulate our minds to think about those individuals who might be qualified to serve alongside of them in the great work that's being done here at Lehman Avenue. And what can happen so often with a group of men who are not only serving but are serving well together is there can be this idea of wanting to close ranks and to circle the wagons and say, we've got the right chemistry, the right group, and so let's just let it be these men that are already serving. But in their humility, they are interested in what's best for the work here. And so their message, I suppose, not to put words in their mouth, you can ask them, is the more the qualified, the better, the merrier. And so in their humility, they have said, let's focus on lessons around this particular theme. It also shows their wisdom. It shows their wisdom because they recognize that with the vision that they have set forth for us and the way that you have embraced the vision, 17 families have placed membership in the last calendar year, 18 baptisms since January of last year. The, the scope of the work is growing. It's broadening. And they realize that the congregation cannot grow beyond the base of leadership. And so in their wisdom, they said, we need to speak not in some panicky terms because we feel like that the existing eldership is in jeopardy, but in order to build and to grow the work, let's focus our attention on subjects in this particular theme. That being the case, we have to begin somewhere, and so what I'd like for us to do is to focus our attention today on the work of elders. 
to be able to get a good focus on what that work is. You know, so often what we'll do is that we will make an analogy or a comparison about life by comparing it to seasons. We talk about the springtime of youth and the wintertime of old age. And we're recognizing something that I suppose we get from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 because you recall that he says that there is a time for everything. There's a season for just about anything. And in verse 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he lays out just about every kind of comparison of a right time and a wrong time to do this or that. And in the midst of this, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 that God has made everything appropriate in its time. And he says in verse 12 that it is always the right time to do what's good. So as you look at what Solomon says there, we can look into life and see that he's exactly right. When we look at our own personal lives or our lives as it revolves around our profession and our occupation, what we will see is that there is a phase in our life where we are all energy and no experience. And yet in the process of time, we grow in the area of experience and as we have energy, we're given greater responsibility and greater tasks in whatever that work or occupation is. The same thing happens in our personal lives. If you'll think about the phases through which a person will go, you'll see how in the, that springtime of youth, we don't really have a lot of life's experience, but God allows us through different ways to build that experience. In the context of what we're talking about today, a man who is a child of God gets married, and then he and his wife have children. And those children pass through various stages of development and then they get old enough to where they leave home and that man and his wife experience the empty nest syndrome, we call it. And then those children get married. And then those children, their grandchildren, they continue to grow and develop and maybe they even experience the blessing of great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. But then they focus up the family tree at their parents. And they see those parents aging and then they even experience the death of those parents. All of these phases and stages of life open up that person to maybe having some more energy or still having some of that energy, but having certainly accumulated a lot of life's experience and hopefully wisdom. And it puts them in a position to where they can be put to use in greater work in the kingdom of God. When you come across that word elder in the New Testament, It is certainly a word we also see to describe the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the focus is on one not only with regard to their age, but their ability to take on responsibility and authority in spiritual matters. As we walk through the New Testament, there are different ways to approach our subject. Next week, Hiram is going to deal with the qualifications of an elder, and both of us face the same limitations and pressures, and that is the pressure of time. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at all the New Testament says with regard to the work of elders. We could probably do a series of lessons on that alone. Certainly with regard to the qualifications in next week's lesson, there is so much said about that, so it requires you and me, all of us, to go into the Bible. I'm going to point you in some directions today. And I want you to go and look at these. Follow behind what we aren't able to say in these lessons and to build your appreciation and your conviction about the matter of the work of elders. Now here's another limitation we have and then we'll get into the lesson. Brother Winkler, when I was in school, used to tell us preacher boys that there are some sermons that are bring-them-down-the-aisle sermons. 
These are kinds that convict us and persuade us and tug at our heartstrings that make us, if we're not children of God, decide that we need to become Christians and maybe bring us down the aisle. Or maybe if we're children of God, it's a lesson that focuses on our need of restoration and repentance. And maybe through the convicting of the preaching that's done, it causes us to publicly respond to the invitation. I don't anticipate that these next few lessons are going to fall into that category. But they are informational. They are to stimulate our minds to understand what God's Word says about this very important subject. Look, when we see the very theme of 1 Timothy chapter 3, of of the book of 1 Timothy, it is chapter 3 and verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, I'm leaving you these instructions so that you know how one ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. God from eternity had it in his mind that the church, which his son was going to purchase with his blood, would be organized in a certain way. And in that organization, it would involve those earthly leaders in subjection to the chief shepherd, who we would know by various terms, elders, overseers, and shepherds. That being the case, I want us to look at three texts today, and then the lesson will be yours. The first place is, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 28 in just a moment, but to set the context for this, the Apostle Paul is coming near the end of his third missionary journey. He has gone all over the world as it was known then, and he is setting things in order. In the book of Titus, he's going to tell uh, Titus on the island of Crete that in every place where there's a church, you need to appoint elders in those places. But right now, Paul has called the Ephesian elders to himself, and from verse 17 to verse 38, he gives them various instructions. But in verse 28 through 31, he focuses in on the work that elders do. Would you notice it with me in verse 28? Take heed unto yourselves and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed or shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, grievous wolves shall enter in, not sparing the flock. And also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore remember that by the space of three years I did not cease to admonish every one of you night and day with tears. Now in those four verses there are at least four different works that elders are to do in the context of the local church. Notice with me, first of all, that they are to guard the flock. Either your passage, your version may say, take heed unto yourselves or guard yourselves. That word guard or take heed is to pay close attention to, to take care of. And you'll notice that the elders, those who serve as overseers, are to guard the flock. What are they to guard the flock against? Well, in the first place, they're to guard the flock against themselves. He says that you are to take heed unto yourself. And he then later says that there are going to be some from among yourselves, among elders, who are going to lead the disciples away. And so there's a personal examination that is a part of a work and life of an elder as he serves. And so he's going to watch his attitude. He's going to watch his conduct. He's going to watch his influence. Listen to him pray. Listen to his comments in Bible class and observe the conversations that he has. You're going to see a man that is imperfect, 
But he is a man who is growing and a man who is striving for faithfulness. And so he's going to guard the flock against himself. In the context, he's also going to guard the flock against false teachers. There are going to be wolves always who are ready to pounce and to prey on the sheep. He is not overly obsessed with issues, but he is informed. That's not what he's consumed with, but he can speak intelligently about what the Bible says about sexual immorality and the changing views of the culture. Who can speak about women's role in the church. Who can speak about the singular nature of the New Testament church and its undenominational nature. He realizes that if the devil can get to the shepherds, then the sheep are easy prey. But in a practical sense, he is also going to guard the flock against any external pressure and problem that can distract and discourage the sheep. I appreciate something that Jason said in his prayer this morning. You know, it's true that all of us come in here with hidden cares, with things that are distracting us and that would pull us away from focusing on what we need to do in the Christian life. Elders are not mind readers, but they are individuals who are guarding the flock. And they're on the lookout for those kinds of things. And through engagement, they're going to be able to help them. Because guarding the flock implies knowing the sheep that make it up. And you know, God has not told us exactly how all that's to be done. How do you get to know the sheep who you are to guard? That's why we'll find in the qualifications things like the need to practice hospitality. Or the idea of going and making visits or of participating in fellowship activities, of mentoring and all that's done in order to allow one to better know the sheep that they're guarding. And so Paul gives us the first work of an elder in Acts chapter 20 verse 28 and that is to guard the flock. You'll notice the second work that he gives is that they are to oversee the flock. Now this is the idea of superintendence. To watch and make sure that things are done in the proper way. You will notice that Paul says that it is to be done, but doesn't say exactly how it's to be done. Remember, these are mature and spiritual men, and so they're going to exercise their judgment and discretion. But there are some things that they've got to take into account as they oversee the flock. There has to be a degree of delegation. You see, what elders do in overseeing the flock is they also provide feeding for the flock, and we'll say more about that in just a moment. But right now we have four elders, and our membership is somewhere between 350 and 400 of folks who are members of this congregation. And they are responsible for the feeding of the sheep to oversee the spiritual health and well-being of the congregation. On any given Sunday and Wednesday night, there are between 15 and 18 Bible classes going on simultaneously. If they wanted to, they could not be in all of those places at the same time. But then there's the teaching that's done away from the assemblies. What about the youth devotions or events where our youth go off-site at um, CYC or at Horizons or at other events where they're being taught something and they're not there physically present? Nor could they all be. And so there's the college devotions that take place. There may be devotional teaching that's taking place on a grub night. There's the Monday night end of the word Bible class. There's ladies Bible class. And through all of this, they are given charge of oversight. And so there's some trust and delegation. Our elders are really good about doing this when a family comes and places membership. Not every congregation does this. 
But when an individual or a family comes, they sit down with them and they get a chance to talk to them and get to know them and to learn from them certain things and to share certain things about them. And they operate from a place of trust in them. Oversight is something that God gives us some principles about in places like 1 Peter chapter 5 in the text that Jim read so well a moment ago where the, uh, the folks are told or the elders are told in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight thereof, not doing it under compulsion, but uh, voluntarily, nor uh, yet uh, uh, doing it for sordid gain, but eagerly, nor as yet being lords over those allotted to your charge, but being examples of the flock. Now you'll notice that Peter gives us three contrasting statements that tell us what oversight is and what oversight is not. First of all, he says that oversight is that which is to be done voluntarily, not under compulsion. Do you see the wisdom of our elders being proactive and saying, let's talk about this and let's teach about this and let's see um, those among the congregation instead of getting in a position where a lot of congregations find themselves where there are two elders and they're one heartbeat away of four people from not having an eldership. And what can happen in a situation like that is the panic button is pushed. And so what is said in response to that is we need to find somebody. And so they'll reach out and you have those folks that are not really wanting to step forward. And a man is finally, maybe his arm is twisted and he steps up and he serves. That man is going to serve maybe, but out of duty and not out of delight and out of blessing. Peter says that one should never be asked to serve as an elder under compulsion, but willingly do so. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1 that this is something that a man should desire. Now that desire is informed by what Titus is told in Titus 1 and verse 5, that God in his organizational plan wants every congregation to have elders, and a man who loves the church and is spiritually growing will strive toward that. But we find that, that when somebody is compelled to do so, so often they might be one who's very easily pushed by other men in that position and not be so independent-minded. And so Peter, by the movement of the Holy Spirit, says, you need to do this willingly. And another contrast that is made there is that it's not to be done for sordid gain, but eagerly. Now, the idea of a paid elder is a biblical idea. Just study 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. But it's not something that happens very commonly today. So what is Peter saying there? Peter was a preacher and an elder. Perhaps that was the principle that he had in mind as one taught the word as an elder. The idea is you don't do, use this job in order to further your own financial gain. Maybe one gets a better standing in the community, a better reputation by saying, I'm an elder in the church. But what is his attitude toward money? As we look at qualifications next week, he's got to have the right attitude toward money. And without having that proper attitude, what can happen is that they can look at the members of the congregation that are better to do and show favoritism toward those who are better contributors. Peter says, no, that's not the way you approach that work. You do so eagerly, trying to, to treat the congregation even-handedly in your service of them. But he also says that you're not to do so as lords over those allotted to your charge, but as examples to the flock. There is a very basic desire in men and in humanity, and that is to have power. 
And even the apostles struggled with this in their lifetime. In Jesus' ministry, they said, Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Often they were concerned about that. And so, so what can happen is that we can tap into that base desire and want to rule over others. Wasn't it wise that Jesus came along and he showed them when he began to teach his disciples silently in the last week of his life that greatness comes in service. And he donned the towel and as he got on his knees and he washed their dirty feet, he says, do you know what I've done unto you? You call me master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Behold, I've given you an example that you should do as I've ever done unto you. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. You know, uh, the Kemp's and Kathy and I went to polishing the pulpit this last week. And I, I obviously didn't go to any of the ladies' sessions, but Kathy shared with me something that one of the lady speakers said. And she said that uh, her, the comment she made was that you don't appoint someone to a position of leadership so that they can put on the towel. You look for those who already have donned the towel, and those are the servant leaders that you want. An overseer is one who does so not lording it, but being examples of the chief shepherd. First Peter chapter 5 in verse 4. And so as we look at what the, uh, Paul is saying to these Ephesian elders, he says, here are the works of an elder. They are to guard the safekeeping of the flock. But they're also to be overseers of that flock. And then there's that third qualification, that third work rather, that we see in Acts chapter 20. And that is that they are to shepherd the flock. This is an analogy, an illustration that you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the shepherd-sheep relationship. And as we think about how that's illustrated for us, there's a couple of places that we go. Is there any place that we think more about the shepherd and the sheep than Psalm 23? There we have epitomized for us the perfect shepherd. And when we think about what is said about that shepherd... And this is not exhaustive, but think about some of the qualities of the great shepherd that shepherds will seek to emulate in their work. First of all, they will have a personal relationship with the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. Isn't it so important in an impersonal age that elders are men who develop personal relationships with those whom they are charged with feeding and seeing to their spiritual welfare? When we think about that, there are ways in which that's done. As we've said, maybe that's hospitality. Maybe that's sitting down one-on-one -on -one with families. That's associating with them outside of the assemblies. Whatever is necessary to establish and solidify relationships. They have this personal relationship with them. You'll also see that the good shepherd satisfies personal needs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. There is a beautiful intention by God in the shepherd and sheep relationship. God intends for the shepherds to be those who can be aware of the emotional needs of the sheep. There are certain emotional needs that we all share. We all want to love and we want to be loved. We want a sense of value and care. And so we see that that's how they approach this. The good shepherd also alleviates fears. We see that I will fear no evil. 
Elders will often be called upon to help people to overcome the fears of the past. The biggest fear that people have with regard to their past is that their sins have not been forgiven. You ask an elder if they've ever had to sit down with people who were struggling with the guilt of things that by scriptural account has already been forgiven them. They also are going to help people with the fears that they face in the present. There are a multitude of fears that the sheep will have and that elders will encounter. Maybe it's the abuse of a spouse or of a parent. Or maybe that fear is of a difficult employer or an impossible employee. They're going to be aware of those kinds of things. But they also are going to look into their lives and they're going to see that they, their job as good shepherds is to restore the soul. He says, you restore my soul. There are so many things that disturb the souls of the sheep. A soul may be disturbed because of faith problems. Our, ship, our faith can be shipwrecked according to 1 Timothy 1 and verse 19. It can be fallen away from or departed from Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 and 13. Everything from higher education and the problems of life can cause one's faith to be destroyed. But maybe one's family problems will cause them to have their souls disturbed. There are going to be separations in the life of a congregation. There are going to be divorces in the life of a church. There are going to be rebellious teenagers. There's going to be drug and alcohol problems. There are going to be all kind of domestic concerns and elders will be pulled into the middle of that. And as they do, those parents and those families will respond well to those who show their care and love and knowing that their needs and their concerns can be addressed through the shepherds of the sheep. Then also there's financial problems that cause one's souls to be disturbed. Maybe it's a job loss or being laid off. Or maybe it's gross mismanagement of one's funds or maybe one's been taken advantage of and they find themselves in a place of dire financial position. Do you see in all of this, this is not exhaustive, but do you see how David in, in giving us the great shepherd shows us what's involved in shepherding? If we had the time, we would look closer at John chapter 10 and we would see Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. Watch my example. I know the sheep. I call them by name, verse 3 and verse 14. Now how is that done in a growing and large congregation? You have, as we have right now, four men and the number of people, the ratio is about 75 or 100 to 1. How does one shepherd know that many different sheep? Well, that's also in the realm of judgment. Perhaps it can be done on a rotation basis where one elder is responsible for a segment of the flock. There's wisdom in every elder knowing ultimately all the sheep that make up the flock, but there's limitations in that. They're going to do all they can to know the sheep by name. They're also a leader. Jesus distinguishes himself from those bad, those false shepherds and he spends the time and he knows the way and he shows the way. You know what you can see in a man who's serving as an elder in the work that he does? You can see a man who exemplifies through his attendance and through his personal work and through his visitation and through his encouragement. You're going to see one who is a leader. An elder, a shepherd, is going to be one who sacrifices the good shepherd's going to lay down his life for the sheep. And a shepherd is going to be one who cares intensely about the circumstances of the sheep. 
Jesus in a parable says that the ideal shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 and goes out and he searches for the one until he can bring it back. Luke 15 verse 1 through verse 9. In all of these ways, through repeated texts of scripture, God lays out for us the shepherd-sheep relationship. And he says this is central. This is at the heart of what an elder does. And so here's what that means doesn't mean that an elder has no responsibility for or no interest in the dispersing of the funds. But it means that deacons can be delegated this work so that they can focus on the needed work of shepherding. It also means that they're not going to be doing away with meetings, but the purpose and the priorities of those meetings change. They're going to spend a lot more time talking about the sheep and a lot less time talking about the shekels. When we consider the work of an elder, in Acts 20, verse 28 through 31, he shepherds. But then there's another thing that we notice before we leave this text. And that is that an elder in his work is going to be on the alert. Vigilant. His eyes are wide open. He knows what's going on. He knows the answer to the question, where is brother or sister so-and-so? As he is on the alert, that doesn't mean that he is obsessed to the point that he thinks that it's his work alone. It's not the work of an elder. It's the work of an eldership. And so no one elder is going to act unilaterally or alone. An elder by himself is subject, in subjection to the eldership the same as every member of the congregation. But he's on the alert. He realizes that this work is great. As we think about the text that we have seen, I've not left myself a lot of time, so I'm just going to mention the other two passages. That was really a four-point sermon, if you will. But I want to notice just two other things. First of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, this is in the middle of a text in which Hiram is going to deal with the qualifications next week. There are two things that are said about his work in this text that grow out of the qualifications the first thing is that he is to rule his own house. Now, you'll look at the rulership in a healthy, functional home. He's not going to be a micromanager into every little detail. But he is going to be one who is leading, one who is directing the home because his children are going to be in subjection with all dignity. But why? Why this qualification? That's always the right question to ask. It's so that he can take care of of the church of God. He is going to be tender. He is going to watch for the emotional and the spiritual needs of his children because in doing that, he has proven that he can take care of the church of God. It has been that proving ground and God demonstrates his desire that there's a balance. Rule well your home. Take care of the church of God. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, Again, as Paul is giving qualifications to Titus about who an elder is supposed to be, he speaks of three works in that passage. When he says, hold fast the faithful word of life so that you may be able to exhort unto sound doctrine and to uh, convict the one who contradicts. Because there's all kind of evil men, uh, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision who subvert whole houses, teaching for things that they ought not for the sake of sordid gain. Three things about his work there. Number one, he is to exhort. What's the difference between exhorting and teaching? 
Teaching is to instruct, to speak to the intellect, to the mind. But exhortation is that and more. It speaks to the heart, to the will, and to the actions of a person. It's a call to take the information given and apply it to your life and to change your life as the result of that. It is a kind coming along, a gentle arm around the shoulder that says, you can do this. God's word teaches it. You can do it. He's also to convict. He must have a knowledge of God's word that helps him to be able to get into the hearts of folks and to see that this is what the Bible says. And the reason for that is to do this work, and that is to stop the mouths of empty talkers and deceivers. He doesn't, the, the elders do not lay that job solely or primarily at the feet of the preacher. How often has the preacher been the source of the problem? You see, an elder is going to have the conviction and the knowledge of God's word that when he's sitting there and he's hearing something taught in a Bible class or something said in a sermon, he'll know whether it's right or wrong. If not, he'll study that. And if he realizes that what's said is wrong, he'll be wholehearted enough and courageous enough to say this wasn't right. He'll do it with kindness, but he'll stand up because the shepherd is in charge of the welfare of the sheep. When I was a little boy... Mom used to have devotions with us and dad too, but mom was always the, the steady there. And there was a song that she used to sing. I don't know if I've heard Hiram sing this in the Pew Packers class, but it was one we used to sing when we were real little. The shepherd loves his sheep and God loves me. The shepherd knows each one and God knows me. The shepherd sees each, his sheep and God sees me. I'm so glad to know that God loves me. And you know, one of the palpable demonstrations of God's love for us is the way he's organized his church. He has shown us that understanding that the men who serve in this capacity are not perfect men. They are men with flaws and foibles and frailties and weaknesses the same as anyone else, but they have demonstrated a spiritual maturity that is recognized by the congregation that causes them to say, these are men who we wish to lead us on our journey toward heaven. I want to close with these particular observations with regard to the work of an elder. The first thing I want us to notice in the work of an elder is that being an elder is a work. It is not, uh, and here's an imbalance that can happen. I want you to pay attention to the prayers we pray and we mean well when we do it. But make note of how often we'll say, when, when we pray for our elders, God bless our elders and the decisions that they make. It's a good prayer. But when's the last time you've heard somebody say in their prayer, God bless the elders in the work that they do? Serving as an elder is a work. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1? If anyone desires the work of an elder, it is a good work he desires to do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it seems in verse 14 and following that the Apostle Paul is addressing the leaders of the church. He says in verse 12 and 13 that they are to recognize and to esteem and love those elders. And then he turns to those who seem to be in charge of the spiritual needs of the sheep. And he says, I want you to admonish and I want you to encourage and I want you to pray and I want you to rejoice and, and I want you to prove all things. Not only does he give the work, but he also says how that work is to be done. Furthermore, I want you to notice with me that the work of an elder is a work that centers on people. 
The elder's greatest work that he ever does will not be done in a boardroom, but will be done in a living room and a dining room and in a hospital room. I don't have note of it up here, but another thing that we notice in the work of an elder is that so much of that work centers on a competent, growing knowledge of the Word of God. He is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. They are to lead us in regards to the Word. The other thing I want us to notice is that in appointing qualified men to serve as an elder, everybody benefits more. We as the sheep benefit the more qualified, capable men are serving as elders. But if you thought about this, it benefits those men who are currently serving. It is a great deterrent, a greater deterrent against burnout and discouragement. It's hard for me to be able to quantify for you, and I know I only know a portion of that. Sometimes I get insight into what's happening behind closed doors that the general membership does not know, but these elders put in so much time in serving the Lord. They all have families. They all are working jobs. They all have outside interests. They like to take vacations, but there are so many needs of the sheep, and the more qualified men who serve in that regard, the easier it is for them all to do that work. And with regard to that, the greater the sense that we have that we are able to do God's work, God's way, as we select those men to serve. The main purpose of this sermon is for us to understand what the Bible says about the work of an elder. We can, in our own mind, set up a a, a list of things that make up the work of an elder that Scripture just does not support. The Bible makes clear that the work as it's outlined is a grave and serious and important work. It's a work that touches not just this life, but eternity. I love what 1 Peter 5 verse 4 says about those who serve successfully. They're going to be crowned by the chief shepherd with a crown that will not fade away. I hope that you, if you do not already do so, will pray for our elders. That you'll pray for John and Bobby and Kevin and Russell. Pray for them and their families each and every day. Find opportunity to thank them for the work that they're doing and pray God to help them to find those men who can work with them in this great work. It centers around sheep. The great shepherd, the chief shepherd's work centered around sheep. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came understanding that we were not in the 99, that all of us were those who had gone astray. And he he left heaven for earth and went to the greatest lengths to get us back. Jesus is tenderly calling all those who would come and respond to his great invitation. Maybe you find yourself as a wandering sheep who needs to be restored to the fold. Maybe through the sin in your life you realize that you're not on the path that leads to life but that which leads to destruction. Maybe you need to make a change. We would love to encourage you if you have a need publicly to respond. If you've not yet made Jesus the Lord of your life, he gave everything so that you might respond to his love and his grace and obedient faith. Are you ready to act on your faith in Jesus as the Son of God to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? We would love nothing more than to help you with all that is going on Nothing's more important than helping and assisting you in that need. If this is your invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing.